All right, good morning. I want to welcome you here today. I asked this in first service, so I got to ask again, who walked this morning? Like, raise your hand if you walked. Yeah, we have a few out there. Nice work, yeah. Um, Everyone online right now is like, yeah, I walked to the couch this morning, so doing pretty good. So we're going to start a GoFundMe page for the rest of you that walked, because that's just not right. You shouldn't walk in temperatures like this. I want to welcome you to Mount Olive. So glad you're here. Uh, If you're brand new with us or just kind of visiting for the the weekend, we're glad that you're a part of us as well. And we invite you to worship and and learn with us as we uh, study and dive into God's Word and seek uh, our Heavenly Father. Uh, We've been in a series we started last week entitled Surround Sound Hearing God. And I was really excited about this series. Still, I'm excited about the series. I told you last week I was excited for two reasons. One is because this is a really, really important topic, this idea of hearing God. And here's why. Because the Christian life is about having a relationship with our Heavenly Father. The Apostle Paul talked about walking in step with the Spirit. And so this idea of hearing God, if we're in relationship with God, our Father, uh, it would be vitally important in a relationship to have communication. And God has most definitely communicated with us. That's why this series is entitled Surround Sound. In fact, He hasn't just communicated to us in one way. His presence is everywhere and his communication to us is in many different forms in di- many different ways. And so we're, I'm excited just to, to look at uh, this series because it's so, so important for us as we journey, not to become a Christian, uh, although you do need to hear God's prompting to receive Jesus as well, um, but as you journey with Jesus. The other reason I'm excited about this series because it's just interesting. I mean, most of us at some point, whether you're uh, all in with faith and you're all in with following Jesus or you're brand new or maybe you're anti-faith, I imagine at some point in your life, there's been a circumstance or a situation where you thought, God, if you're real, would you just speak to me? I just want to know. I just need to know that you're here. And so this is a, a series of great interest. Does God speak? And if he does, how? And how do we learn to hear him better? So, Last week, we started by seeing that God speaks to us by His Spirit. That God, who is Spirit, speaks to us by His Spirit. Often, and we read this in Romans, He speaks by His Spirit to our spirit. And obviously, you know something about spirits. They're not physical. And so often when we hear God's voice by His Spirit, it's not an audible, a physical voice. Often it's an inclination, a conviction of our soul or our our heart. It's a a prompting, a whisper. And we talked about last week about hearing the still, small voice of our Father. Often God speaks to us in quietness and in the quietness of our own hearts. And so we need to take time to listen in stillness and quietness. But I brought up the, uh, maybe the question you had last week. Well, how do I know when I have this prompting or the, you know, how do I know it's God, right? How do I know it's not just my stomach speaking, right? Or how do I know it's not my own desire saying, hey, I think I want to do this and I'll just say it's God now. Well, today we're going to look at another way that God speaks to us that helps us discern, was it from God or not? And that is God speaks to us also by his word. God has given us His word. And any prompting or any message we might get from God or think we have heard from God uh, always needs to line up with his already written word to us. So how do we listen to the voice of God that he's spoken to us by his word in in a clearer or better way? We're going to dive into that. But let me say something really, really obvious that is the premise of this message. Um, In fact, it's so obvious you're going to think, 
does Elvin think we're just not that smart? But it needs to be said, okay? If God speaks by his word, then hearing God's voice would require an investment in his word. If God has spoken to us by his word, which he has, then any, for us to hear God's word would require an investment on our behalf into God's word. Now, I'm gonna make an assumption this message regarding God's word. I'm just gonna say it up front because if you're not there, if you're not assuming the same thing, uh, this message is gonna be really hard for you to accept. And the assumption is this. God's word, the Bible, that's how I'm defining it. God's word, the Bible, is true and it came from him. This is the assumption I'm making in this message. Everything else is built off of this assumption. Now, some of you may be, may be sitting here thinking, well, yeah, let's move on. I already agree. And others of you may be uh, wrestling a bit because you're not sure. Is the Bible that we have right now, is it truly God's word? Can it truly be trusted? Is it reliable? And how do we know it came from God? And how do we know that it is true? And I just want you to invite you, and in fact, I think God would want to as well invite you to wrestle that. Um, God is not intimidated by our questions. Uh, he doesn't feel smaller when we doubt him because whether you believe in him or not does not make him real or not. He is reality. And so he's not intimidated. In fact, the truth is not intimidated or scared by our questions and not by our doubts because the truth is not determined to be true by our belief in the truth. The truth is true, whether we choose to believe the truth or not. And so as we wrestle this, I would invite you, wrestle it. Do research. When we seek the truth, uh, God's word is really clear. We will find it if we seek it honestly. And so go ahead and, and wrestle and struggle uh, but with this assumption, but this is the assumption that we're working off of. Now, before we go into the rest of the message, I want to give two evidences for the reality of this assumption, okay? Just if you're wrestling a bit, and you can wrestle with these as well. Now, one of the evidences that the Bible is God's word, and it's true, and it came from him, is the whole idea of prophecy. There is uh, scholars uh, who conservatively figure that Jesus, his coming to earth, and his ministry on earth fulfilled some 300 prophecies, spoken hundreds of years before Jesus ever came. And when he came, his coming and his work in ministry fulfilled some 300 prophecies. Now, is that just chance? Maybe. I highly doubt it. Here's one prophecy. Isaiah said in Isaiah 7:14 that there will be a virgin who will give birth to a child and they'll name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And both Matthew and Luke record that there was this this, this teenager, this young girl named Mary, who was a virgin, and she gave birth to a child. They named him Jesus, and they called him Emmanuel, which means God with us, a fulfillment of that prophecy. It's unbelievable. Here's another one. I love this stuff. So anyways, I'll give you one more, and then we'll keep going. Um, in Exodus chapter 12, you know the story of the Israelites in slavery in Egypt. Now they were commanded to take Passover and celebrate Passover for years later. But Passover was when they take a lamb without defect or blemish, a perfect lamb. They would kill it, take the blood, put it over the door frames of their house. And when the angel of death would come, it would pass over and they would be saved. They would not be killed by the angel of death, by the plague of death. 
Now there's this interesting little comment in the law, covenant law, for the Old uh, Testament for the nation of Israel, that when they killed the lamb, and you can read about this in Exodus chapter 12, when they killed the lamb, they were not to break any of the lamb's bones, which seems kind of strange. Now fast forward over a thousand years later, one of the very first descriptions that is spoken of Jesus as an adult is spoken by John the Baptist. And when he sees Jesus, he says this, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That just as the Passover lamb, the blood of the lamb saved you from death, here is the lamb of God who covers over, his blood covers over our sin and we are given life. We are also saved from death. But then John The writer of the Gospel of John makes an interesting statement at Jesus's crucifixion. Jesus was crucified with two criminals. And to speed up the dying process, the Romans had this uh, uh, process of breaking the legs of those who were uh, crucified so that they could not push themselves up to breathe because you did that to keep breathing. They could not push themselves up and then they would die more quickly if they needed to speed up the process. Well, they break both the legs of the criminals crucified with Jesus. But uh, John tells us when they came to Jesus, they looked and they saw, oh, he's already dead. And so instead of breaking his legs, they pierced his side and blood and water flowed out. But here's the interesting thing. Remember about the Passover lamb. Not one of his legs could be broken. And Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb. In fact, Paul says this. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, the perfect lamb without defect, fulfilled all the requirements of the lamb of the first Passover, shed his blood for us, sacrificed for us, not a bone of his was broken. And it also fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah, said some 500 years before Jesus came in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, When Zechariah said, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And Jesus fulfilled that prophecy as well. This is why Peter, the disciple of Jesus, said this in 2 Peter. He said that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Meaning the prophets didn't just write saying, well, I think this is going to happen. I think this. No, no, no. Rather, he said, for prophecy was Uh, never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though they were human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you see, prophecy is an evidence for the fact that God's word is from him, it's reliable, and it is absolutely true. The other one is history. History is evidence of the reality of truth of God's word. Give you one example. There's an interesting story in John chapter 5 where Jesus heals this paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. And he had been paralyzed for 38 years. Now it's interesting when John writes this story, he gives us a whole bunch of information that we think, well, that's kind of useless. But listen to what he says. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now, why would he give us all this information that we think, just get to the story, right? Jesus healed this guy. Why? Because scripture was written in history. It was true. 
But here's the interesting thing. For years, years, decades, 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 skeptics believed that John simply made the story up. Because when you went to old Jerusalem by the sheep gate, there was no pool of Bethesda. It had never been found until late in the 19th century when archaeologists discovered this. And you'll see there's three kind of arches and there's two more elsewhere, almost like covered colonnades by the pool of Bethesda. Turns out that God's word was true all along and history has proven this over and over and over again. So the assumption today that I'm making is God's word, the Bible is true and it came from him. And with that assumption uh, made, hearing God's voice most definitely requires an investment from us into his word. If you have your Bibles, go to Psalm chapter 119. I want to read to you, and we're going to look through a passage of scripture that the psalmist, I believe David wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, regarding other words that were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here is David writing the word of God, talking about the word of God. He says this, how, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? It's an honest question, right? How is it that a young person, and I'm guessing he wrote this as a young person, maybe if he was old, he would have said, how is it that an old person can stay on the path of purity? It's just a question. How can, how can one stay on the path of purity? Now, in kind of Western Christianity, when we hear the word purity in church, uh, or in kind of spiritual terms, we almost instantly think of uh, sexual purity. Undoubtedly, the, the psalmist included that in this question, but I believe he went way beyond that. He is speaking about purity in the broadest sense possible. In this way, how can a young person live an undiluted, undefiled, pure life relationship with their heavenly father? How can I live in the purest relationship with God possible? How is it even possible to live in that kind of purity? And here's his answer. By living according to your word. Meaning, if you want to live in the purest relationship, in an ongoing relationship with your heavenly father, in, 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 in complete, undefiled, pure relationship, it's by living according to God's word. The word that he's spoken to us. And he goes on and says, I, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. Because when I am not seeking you, I am prone to what? Stray from your commands. I can't live in purity apart from me being invested in, all in on what your word has already spoken to me. Through your commands. And then the psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How can a young person live in the purest, in the pureness of a relationship with the Father? By living according to your word. And then he says, I have hidden your word in my heart, not in his blood pumping vessel. No, his heart is the very core, the very, the very central fiber of his being. At the very center of who I am, I have placed your word, not to hide it so I don't know where it is, but to put it in a place where I can find it, where it is central to my being. 
And when I've done that, that is how I do not, I keep from sinning against you. Do you know who lived this perfectly? Your savior, Jesus. It was Jesus who sought God's word and God's commands. And it was God's word and God's commands that were at the very center of his being. And it was Jesus when he was tempted by the devil, three times did what? Came back with God's word because he had hidden it. It was in the core place of his being and it kept him from sinning, from falling for temptation. Well, the psalmist continues, praise, praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. I want you to, as we read this, notice all the different words he uses for the word of God. We've already had commands. We have decrees. We have his laws. He goes on, with my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. Here's what he says. I can verbally, audibly hear the word of God through my own mouth. When I recount your word spoken in your law already given to me. Wow. He goes on and says, I rejoice in following your statutes. There's another word, your statutes, as one rejoices in great riches. Now, why would he rejoice in the word of God, in the statutes that God has already given? Why would he rejoice? Because with God, there is life. And when you walk in the word of God, when you walk in step with the Father, when you walk by his statutes, you are walking in the pathway of life. This is like great riches. It's greater than any riches you can find. So he's just, he's just jacked. In fact, he goes on and says, I meditate on your precepts and I consider your ways. There's another word, precepts. I meditate on your precepts. Now we have all sorts of ideas about meditation, in the Western, Eastern world and culture, but the word meditate directly translated simply means this in this, in this context. It means I speak enthusiastically. On your, I, I, I speak enthusiastically about your precepts, about your word. In essence, he's saying, I am so jacked. I am so pumped up about your word, God. It's like I found riches. I'm just so excited. I can't stop talking about it. It is always on my mind. My attention is always on it. It has central place in my heart. And that's where we get the idea of meditation. To con con converge all your thoughts on one thing. To speak enthusiastically about your ways. And then he says, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Did you catch all the ways in which he talks about God's words? It's like he doesn't, he's like a thesaurus out. Like, I gotta find more words to talk about God's word because I am so excited about this. His laws, his decrees, his statutes, his commands. It just goes on and on, his precepts. He is so excited about God's word. And then we come full circle and we ask the question that he started with. How is it that a young person, how is it that any person could stay on the path of purity? It seems as though what the psalmist is saying, outside of God's word, revealed to us in his spoken word, which was then later revealed to us in the word of God, who was Jesus. Apart from the word, I don't think you can. See, to live in God's way is to give your attention to the word of God that's already been spoken. To live in the pathways of God, in the pureness of relationship with him, 
is to turn our attention on the word that's already been given to us, the word of God. But here's the challenge. There is a war going on for your attention. And maybe some of you are like, ah, where's the war? There is a war going on for your attention. You know, for many of us, we might say, God, I, I just want you to speak. God, I want to hear your voice. And I wonder if God sometimes is like, I've already spoken. I've already spoken. Would you, would you invest in? Would you pay attention? Would you turn your attention to the word that I've already given you? But my guess is for many of us, if you're anything like me, there's a war going on for my attention. All kinds of things that are pulling me from pouring my attention into God's word. I wanna ask you, when you wake up in the, in the morning, what's the, what's, what tends to get your attention? What monopolizes your attention? As you walk into midday and it's just after lunch, what tends to get all your attention and monopolizing your attention? When you're in a conversation with someone, and you hear the ting, or you feel the vibration in your pocket, what gets all your attention? There is a war going on for your attention. Tristan Harris, who uh, worked as a, a computer uh, scientist for Google for many years, and then recently or later uh, became a technology ethicist. I didn't even know those existed. A technology ethicist, uh, and it has been described by the Atlantic as the closest thing the Silicon Valley has to a conscience. He is brought up, and these are some of his findings and his words, so you can, you know, debate him. He's had some TED Talks and so on, but he's brought up this idea of the war that's going on for our attention from an ethical perspective. And he's, he's mentioned, and he's worked in the environment, but he said there is a, a small group of people that their entire job and all they do and what they specialize in is how do we get and how do we keep people's attention? And these people, of course, work for the greatest, uh, biggest companies as it relates to apps, uh, Netflix, uh, uh, Instagram, Facebook, you name it. And their whole objective is how do we get and how do we keep people's attention? The reason Tristan has brought this up is because he is uh, convinced that they do not have your best interests in mind. Their goal is not what is it that people want to think about next? Their goal is how do we plant seeds to get people to think about what we want them to think about because we want to keep their attention. And you know why they want to keep your attention? is because your money does not go anywhere where your attention has not gone first. And so they want your attention. And so, you know, when, when uh, uh, YouTube figured out, hey, we can do an autoplay next video, then Netflix followed suit, right? Because we want to keep your attention. And so he's, he's bringing this up and he's bringing this to the surface saying, we need to do something about it because they don't have your best interests in mind. In fact, there's psychology involved in this and they've realized and news uh, agencies have realized that for humans, our attention is better got and longer kept when our emotions are involved. And so if they can especially get you to feel the emotion of rage or get you enraged, that will keep your attention longer. So if there's a headline or an article that will get you going, um, they realize we can keep your attention just a little longer. Because if you're calm, your attention is less long. And so they've, they've brought this up 
because there's a war going on for your attention. And I, I, you already know this, but a lot of times we think, man, if I just had more time for, if I just had a little more attention to give to my family, my kids, that hobby I want to do, reading books, that puzzle, whatever it is that brings, if I just had more ability to give my attention, but isn't it true that you and I tend to give our attention to a lot of things we'd say, I don't even think that's valuable. And yet it seems to get a lot of our attention. And yet there's other things we'd say that is so valuable. And yet it gets so little attention. There's a war going on for your attention. Netflix, the CEO of Netflix a few years ago said this, our three greatest competitors are Facebook, YouTube, and sleep. Because there is a limited resource and it's called our attention. How can we get more of the market? There's a war going on for your attention. So what do we need to do? According to the psalmist, we need to set our attention in the right direction. And that would be turning our attention to God and his word that he's already spoken to us. But this is a challenge. How do we turn our attention? Well, I wanna give you two things. The first one's from Tristan Harris. The second one's from the psalmist. Tristan Harris says, we need to acknowledge that we are persuadable. Because if we continue to live thinking, I'm not that persuadable, no one's getting, then we will just keep falling for the same thing over and over and over. So we need to take stock of our own lives and say, I am persuadable. What am I gonna do about it? Who am I gonna allow or what am I gonna allow to persuade me? And take some control of our own lives. The second one is from the psalmist, and this is what I want to camp on, out on as we close the message in the next 10 minutes. Maybe it's time we start a new attention habit, a new intention habit that is about investing our attention in God's word. We say, God, would you just speak? And God says, I've already spoken. Would you listen to what I've already said? What would it look like for us to start a new attention habit to invest in God's word. To live in the way of God is to give our attention to the word of God. Uh, some research has been done by uh, Philippa Lally on how long habits take to kind of form. And she found that uh, in some research that it takes 66 days on average for a habit to become a habit. So if we're gonna start a new attention habit of seeking God through his word, um, sorry, there's no 21 day fix here. Uh, it's going to take a little more time. She says about 66 uh, days to form a new habit. Um, James Clear has written a book on habits called Atomic Habits. And there's some interesting things that are in that. Uh, but one of the things is a statement that he makes, two statements that lots of people have used in different uh, spheres of life. But I think it's helpful for us as we consider how would we start a new habit, a habit of uh, seeking God through his word. He says this, systems are more important than position. And most of the time when we think of habits, either bad habits we want to cut or new habits we want to start, we look at our current position and we say, man, I just wish I was different. And we just charge the hill to try and change ourselves so quickly. And he says, actually, you should not attack the position you find yourself in. There is a system that has led you to that position. And you need to attack the system. And so he says, your current system is perfectly designed to get your current results. Your current system is perfectly designed. So if you don't like your current results, don't say, I need to make some big changes on the results. Say, what are some small changes 
some small changes I can do on my system that's going to create some big changes in the future. Think of it this way. If you're into health and, and, and you know, maybe feeling better about your, your body or eating habits and so on, uh, often we're like, man, I'm going to do something massive, right? It's like, I'm going to run for an hour today and only eat salad. Now, at the end of the day, you're probably not going to look any different and you're probably not going to feel any different other than you just ran for an hour in minus 40, so you're just going to feel terrible. But probably it's not going to create a whole bunch of change. But if you did something small, just a small change for two or five or 10 years, the change over that amount of time would have massive, massive impact. And as it relates to God's word, if there was one thing, as I look back at my life, that has had the greatest influence in my spiritual, my own spiritual journey, It would be an event that happened when I was 12 years old. We had a guy come to our church and he told us at the time, he said, if you do anything for three months, I guess back in the, you know, 90s, it took three months to form a habit. Now it's just 66 days. But he said, if you do anything for three months, it'll become a habit. And so he challenged us. I was 12 years old. He said, I challenge you to read your Bible every single day for three months. And I promise it'll become a habit. And so I signed up, not because I was really spiritual. I actually signed up because I was going to prove him wrong. So I committed to reading my Bible every day for three months. And then on month four, day one, I had planned to stop reading and be like, ha, proved you wrong. So I started reading my Bible every day for three months. Four months later, I woke up one morning. I'm like, oh, shoot, I forgot to stop reading my Bible. It had become a habit in my life. And out of all the things, and there's a lot of things, and there's probably two or three that have been the the greatest impact, this is one of the greatest things that has formed me and shaped me as a person. And some of you are thinking, yeah, you're a pastor. I wasn't a pastor when I was 12 years old, okay? You can do this. So I want to challenge you. What would it look like for you to dive in to God's word? And I'll tell you, as a 12-year-old, when I read my Bible, and I did it most every day, I've done it since most every day. I mean, there's days I missed, undoubtedly. But as I read the Bible, many times as a 12, 13, 14-year-old, even as a 35-year-old, I read my Bible, I think, well, that didn't make any sense. And I close it, and guess what I do the next day? I open it up and I read it again, even when the previous day made no sense to me. Because reading my Bible has become part of my identity. It's who I am. I'm a I'm a Bible guy. Even if I'm not a pastor, that's not my, I I, I read the Bible. It's what I do every day. Some days I don't, but most every day. And it forms me. And here's what has happened. Many times I don't get anything, a whole lot out of it. Some days, very few in the last two decades has it been like earth shattering. But most days it's small and subtle. And there's a little bit of correcting here. I'm like, oh yeah, that's God's character. Oh yeah, that's what he's called me to. Sometimes it's a little bit of rebuking, a little bit of training, a little bit of redirecting. And I don't even notice it that day. It's not like, whoa, my life changed. But I'll tell you back, looking back over the last two decades, it has changed me immensely. A small change over a long period of time can change a whole lot about us. Now, does that make me some kind of hero? No. In fact, if you saw how I read the Bible, some of you would look at me and you'd judge me. You'd be like, you don't do it good enough. And that's okay. But it's something I've made a habit to do every day, most days, 
And I want to invite you to do the same. Maybe some of you are thinking, I just haven't heard from God in a while. Your current system is perfectly designed to get your current results. Now, in a moment of pastoral honesty, I will tell you this. I cannot find a verse that says you should read your Bible every day, okay? So this is not law. It is an invitation from your father who says, I am communicating and I have communicated with you. Do you want to hear my voice? It's not law like, well, if I feel guilty, I don't want you to feel guilty. It's an invitation. There's no law that I can find that says you have to do it in the morning or read it at night or do it every day. Here's what I have read. The psalmist said this, with my lips, I recount all the laws, your word that has come from your mouth. It's just something that's on my lips. And then he goes on, I meditate. I speak enthusiastically. It's always on my heart. I, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Does that mean he meditated on it once a year? We're not told. Once a week, we're not told. Every day, we're not told. Twice a day, we're not told. It's not law. It's a relationship that God has invited you in, saying, I've spoken. What would it look like for you to invest in his word, to make an investment? Maybe start a new habit, even if you're only 12 years old. Let me give you a challenge. We've done this before. It's the three and three challenge. I tell you, do it for three months, it'll become a habit, okay? It's my, anyway, 66 days. Three and three challenge. Here's my challenge to you. For the, every day, for the next three months, Simply do three things for three minutes every day. Read your Bible for three minutes. If you've never started reading your Bible, just three minutes. Just start there. Just be like, I'm just going to do three minutes every day. And as you read it, maybe ask yourself this question. What does it say? What does it mean? What do I do? And then take three minutes and say, God, I want to listen. As I think about what your word says, what does it say? What does it mean? Is there anything that I'm supposed to do in my thinking or my behaving that you've called me to, or my perspective of you that should maybe look different. What does it say? What does it mean? What, what should I do? So read for three minutes. Maybe for you, that's a chapter. You're a fast reader. Maybe for you, it's like one verse. Start somewhere. Just read the same verse for three minutes and meditate on it for three minutes. And then lastly, spend three minutes praying where you cast your cares on your Father in heaven, where you bring before him the things that you're struggling with or the things that you want Maybe you desire for your kids or your family or those that are in your circle. But every day, just three minutes, three things, three times a day. Less than 10 minutes. Most of us have 10 minutes in our day. Uh, Wayne Codero breaks it down this way. Maybe this is helpful for you. He's the SOAP acronym, Scripture. Read Scripture for three uh, minutes a day. Observe and apply. So that's asking those questions. What does it say? What does it mean? What should I do? And then praying. And of course, you know, if we're going to walk in purity, you're going to need soap. So use the soap acronym. There you go. Um, works out, right? But maybe that's helpful for you. But my encouragement to you, and maybe you're like, I don't have 10 minutes. Then I would say, start the three-in-one challenge. Do three things for one minute. Just start, at, start somewhere. And as you start a habit, you can only approve on a habit that you already have. So start a habit somewhere. James Clear in his book, Atomic Habits, gives this story of a guy named Mitchell who has lost over 100 pounds and kept it off for a decade. But he had this strange rule when he first started. His rule was this. He would not spend more than five minutes at the gym. So he'd get up in the morning, he'd drive to the gym, do half an exercise, pack up and drive home. And it seemed like a strange rule. 
Because it's like, well, that's not going to get you to where you want to be. And the truth is it wouldn't. But Mitchell was mastering something really, really important. He was mastering the art of just showing up. It's been said regarding working out that the heaviest weight in the gym is the front door. He was just mastering the art of just showing up. The other thing he was doing is he was forming identity. He was a gym guy. Went to the gym every day, right? He's a gym guy. It's who he is. And so if you haven't been investing in God's word, my encouragement is just start. Start. God has spoken already through his word. And we get to invest in it and just start somewhere. You can't improve on a habit until it's already a habit. And then as you form a habit, then maybe you say, man, I need to spend a little more than one minute or three minutes or 10 minutes. Maybe for you, you want to start journaling. I don't know. There can be different seasons where we do different things to help us just hone in and say, God, what would it look like for me to meditate on your word? Because to live in God's way is to give your attention to the word of God. And God has already spoken. Amen. And we get to listen. Are you listening? I want to close today with prayer, but we're going to pray a prayer all together. It's going to be kind of communal prayer. Um, we're going to pray by reading the passage that I just spoke on from Psalm, Psalm 119. Now, maybe for some of you, you're like, I don't know if I want to start a new habit. And so you're like, I don't know if I'm going to pray a prayer declaring that I will meditate on God's word. So I want to invite you just to refrain from praying the prayer. We don't, church already has lots of hypocrites. We don't need any more, right? So, but if you are, if you are there and you're like, you know what, this is something I'm already doing or this is something, God, you've challenged me. And not out of guilt, never, we, not out of guilt. But God, you have already spoken and, and I want to be someone who walks in purity, a pure relationship with you. I need your word. I want your word. I want your word more. God, help me want your word more. And if that's where your heart is, I invite you to pray this prayer out loud together. Let's pray together. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.